0: Welcome to the Power of Sports Podcast, I'm your host, Aaron Miller, and I'm really pleased to introduce my latest guest today, Dr. Donna Lopiano, one of the greatest softball players of all time, a trailblazing athletic director, and a world-renowned advocate for gender equity in sport. She's also the current president of the Drake Group, which is an organization committed to advancing positive legislative change in college athletics. Dr. Lopiano has been inducted into 13 halls of fame, has five honorary doctorates, and has garnered the highest praise from the biggest names in sports. As but one example, consider what the late, great women's basketball coach of the University of Tennessee, Pat Summit, said of her, quote, if people ask who is the most powerful woman in women's athletics, I would say Donna stands alone, close quote. So please listen in as I asked Dr. Lopiano about her tenure as athletic director at the University of Texas, her time leading the Women's Sports Foundation, and what needs to be done now to further advance equity in sports for all. Hi Donna, good morning. How's it going? It's going really well. And thank you so much for taking some time today for this. I really appreciate it.
1: It's okay
2: be you, me and my Gatorade from recovering from the gym.
0: Oh, good. Good for you. What was going on at the gym today? What were you doing?
2: My body was moving. <laughs>
0: <You know. laughs> that's what it's all about.
2: Yeah. Too hot to go outside.
0: Yes, I yeah. I understand you have a pretty bad heat wave back there. I know. Uh, we do, but it's not humid and that's everything. I lived in Japan a long time and that humidity over there is the same, I think, so.
2: Really? Is it a killer in June? Yeah.
0: It's, sim- it's similar to the East Coast. Yeah. Very similar. That's Hot right. humid in the summers. Unbearable. Mm-hmm. Don't go to Japan in the summer. Just don't.
2: No, I've been to Japan in forever.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: Really? I I don't think I've been there for 30 years.
0: <laughs> I, I would love to one day be able to go there with you and, and share some of uh, my experiences in sports over there with you. I about ten
2: years. I wonder if we know, okay, I'll describe a person to you Okay. and you tell me whether you know her. She was okay. very influential in developing intercollegiate athletics in Japan. About 15 or 20 years ago, she came over here and spent some time at U.S. universities, did some writing over in Japan. And the last I heard of her, which was probably 15 years ago, she was trying to organize something like what we have.
0: Oh um, yeah, there is a push right now to make a sort of a Japan version of the NCAA. They want yeah. to commercialize their college sports. So I've been well, involved with yeah. television, be careful. Yeah.
2: I have to think of her name. I'm embarrassed.
0: Uh, okay. Yeah. It doesn't ring I'm a bell to me. Like... I, but I'll okay. find out. I will find out. I've got people on the ground there that I can ask and see if we can figure out who's well, that is. I
2: have to assume she's not dead. <laughs>
0: okay. No, she
2: was younger than me. She was younger
0: than me. We better act quick. I know. I'm just so grateful to you for spending some time to do this. And I wanted to do this for a long time. And I just really, I, I love the work that you've been doing over the years. And I admire you for it. And I know I'm not the only one. But I always like to start these conversations just by starting at the beginning. What was it like for you growing up? I understand you grew up in Connecticut. What was that like?
2: I did. I grew up on a street with 15 boys and one other girl who mm-hmm. have named my cousin. I did not realize that I was a girl until I went out and tried out for Little League baseball, and they told me I couldn't play.
0: And I read that story. that You were 11 yeah. at
1: the time? Yeah, I was 10 or 11. Uh-huh. Drafted number one. And yeah, the rule book got me. It's, oh, man,
2: he did it. And this was well before the 73 lawsuit that opened up little league and little league with chickens. They are, and yes. they started softball for girls rather than opening up. Baseball.
0: Yes. So. And I understand. I also read that you have a, a famous expression that you use about chickens.
2: Yeah. Dot hates chickens.
0: <laughs> I love that one. But what was that like for you, Donna, when you were told, cause you're not just accepted onto the team, you were drafted number one out of all the players. Oh, yeah, and then no, some parents was, came around no, right. and said, no, it's against the rules for you to play. What was that
2: like? I, I cried for three months. My parents sent my parents off on a hunt for a team I could play on. And at the time, there were no teams for girls. Oh. And there were women who played softball, but they were in industrial leagues. And you had to be 16 years old in, in order to play. So when I turned 16... My my dad invited his one of his best army friends over to my parents' restaurant for dinner. And his name was Sal Cajanello. He was a scout for the Pittsburgh Pirates, but more importantly, he was the best friend of Wee Devitt, who was the coach of the national championship where he his break hits in Stratford, Connecticut. He my father Plied him with a bottle of Chianti. And he agreed to take me sight unseen to a trail. And I had never met him. He came up the next week and he picked me up and I drove to Stratford, Connecticut, 30 miles up the road with him. I was happy as a clam. He didn't even talk to me. I think he was worried about his reputation. He'd never seen me play. It was just one of those things that you only... Think about in retrospect. Sure. And so we got there and introduces me to the coach. And then he leaves and goes, sits in his car in the outfield parking lot, right? He doesn't want to see the debacle, right? And after about 10 minutes of the tryouts, he realized that I was really good. And so it took another five minutes for him to lean on the outfield then. And then he moved to the third baseline fence. And by the end of the tryout, he was in the dugout sitting next to the coach. He, he was saying, that's his business, discovering great players.
1: Yeah, it was and all about all of
2: his, all of his life I told him he discovered being a bottle bottom of a bottle of TNT.
0: That's really funny. Wow. Yeah. What a cool story. But before that, for five years, I guess, you were unable to play baseball during right. that. From 11 to 16. So were you playing other sports? Were you playing anything at all during that time?
2: In high school, junior high and high school, they had teams that played. might have played, the boys had regular games. The girls might have played a schedule of four or five contests. And usually they were play days. So right. you would go to another school. They would put two kids from every school on a team. You've read the history of women's sports. These were play days. And even when I went to college, high school had a, 11, had a few more games. But by then I had joined the breakheads. And they wouldn't let me play for my school team because there was a rule that said you can't play on outside teams. But I was happy as a client. I'd rather play over 100 games with remestas than 15 with, with your school.
0: Because college uh, sports for women at that time were not robust, no. I mean, you could, they were, as you said, they were deep competition.
2: Not non-existent. We had teams, I went to Southern Connecticut and while I was in college, didn't play on the softball team because they had the same kind of role. Mm-hmm. Played field hockey, played basketball, played volleyball. You we went from season to season when I was grow- growing yeah. up.
0: And baseball, it sounds, was the first love, not softball. Is that accurate? Oh, absolutely, Yeah, absolutely. And you played absolutely. baseball. With these boys on your street, it sounds absolutely, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah and, and yeah, I was really teed off that I couldn't play,
0: yeah, I can imagine, I'm, I see you talking about it, and I can sense that, and when you played for the breakets, you were traveling all over to play these hundred games a year. What was that like right. and you started at sixteen, so that was yeah, the-
2: it, it was amazing the. Uh, I had always wanted to be a pitcher. It took me almost a year to learn how to pitch it upside down.
0: Because you've been but, pitching, yeah, overhand. I,
2: I didn't. I was throwing balls, you know, against the side of my parents' garage and making believe I was pitching for the Yankees. I remember we could go down the street and buy a rubber ball, baseball, and throw it and in, 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 throw it like a baseball, right. And I but do that for artworks. So and now they're pitching upside down. I couldn't believe this.
1: Yeah. But I, it uh, took
2: me a year. It took me a year to learn.
0: And you learned. You, I know you, what your record was and how many strikeouts you had. So I know you learned quickly. But what about that process of learning at 16 how to play a game, a different game? The field might be similar,
1: but right? The
2: game's the same. The game's yeah. the same. It, the only difference really is pitching
0: mm-hmm.
2: and hitting because of the distances, you cannot take a large swing when somebody's throwing a, a ball at you yeah, from 40 feet away. And when I started, I think they're new at 42 or 43 feet, maybe pitching distance. When I started, it was like 38.
0: Oh, is that right? They moved it back. It, was, it, it
2: was like, you know, i got to be a student of hitting. It, it was uh, the best thing that could have ever happened in terms of figuring out how to be a good hitter.
0: What was your favorite part about on that team?
2: Everybody was older. I was was a little kid, right? And they were just great. They were, I'll have to write a book about them one day. They are, I'm not ever going to write a book again. You you know what that's like. Fortunately, they were teachers. They were all teachers, like physical education teachers. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: And and all the important lessons that I ever learned, I learned from them in terms of, I, I remember one of the first practices I was at, I started out as a shortstop first baseman, right? So like that second baseman, I played infield and I was playing short and we were having batting practice and somebody hits a really hard shot, one, one bouncer into the hole at short. I make a fantastic play, I backhand stab, mm-hmm. play at my floor, rifle it across the bottom of the dime. And I'd spit at my teammates to
1: say great play or something like that, or when he's playing done, right? Nothing. (laughs) And
2: my second baseman comes over to me and says, "Well, Piano, on this team, we never make anything look hard. Wow. And the lesson was, you should be the epitome of confidence. When somebody sees you make a play, it should be like same old. Yeah, You're the natural. And that has stayed with me all my life in terms of never let anything get you upset. Never let anybody see as you're they're doing something that's really hard. Like giving a public speech, right? It, it doesn't matter how you feel inside. Even if you're shaking in your shoes, there is a persona that should be displayed if you want to win a game.
0: Yeah. Wow. And that's stuck with you. and It, it, it makes me... I think of something that I heard you told to Julie Foudy about efforts that she was making to achieve gender equity in soccer. And I don't know if you recall that, but I was reading an article about you where they were talking about how you told her to focus on the fairness of why women were fighting for equality in soccer, not to get angry. Do you remember?
2: I, I, my mantra has always been never get angry. As yeah. soon as you get angry at anybody, the bridge burns behind you. Mm-hmm. And it is, there, there's nothing, that's the lesson it's for. You suffer this devastating defeat. You don't get angry. You don't cry. There's no crying in baseball, right? You step back. You say, why did this happen? And it's never going to happen again. And you practice, come out, and it's, it's all absurd. very intentional. And it's positive, so those are good things.
0: Yeah, that's wonderful. Thank you so much. But I'm, I'm
2: mad at Vouty, and she knows it.
0: Oh, is that right?
2: Yeah, she was supposed to be the first president, female president, of the United States. That's how good of a politician she is, and how good, how charismatic she is. And teed off at her. She marries her coach. She has a family. She's supporting the family when she should be the president of the United States. <laughs> And ESPN has her clammed up because she can't be an activist because she's a returner.
0: Yeah, you're right about that. I hadn't thought about it. Yeah,
2: but but I give her the business every time I see her.
0: Is that right? Oh, that's really really funny. There's still time time for her, right?
2: Yeah, I always thought that the perfect person to be the first president was an athlete. Little Ronald Reagan-esque. If you can imagine a Gina Davis in that role. Just there's something about it that someone who doesn't play the female game, Mm -hmm. who is neutral in terms of sexual stereotypes, Mm -hmm. but who men admire because of their physical acumen, sports knowledge, and acumen, you just break down so many barriers with uh, a sport uh, resume.
1: Yeah,
0: I think you're right about that because of the language of sport that permeates through politics as well, No question. Yeah.
2: Corporations, welcome to America, right? Absolutely. It's it's a capitalist, it's a capitalist
1: thing.
0: Yeah, definitely it is. And I'm curious for, I'd love to hear more about who the people were that you admired as a a young person. What was, or their coaches, maybe on the Brickettes team or teachers or other family members, people that you modeled your own, yourself after?
2: Don't you go through life and every month or two, you meet someone who you really admire? It might be a teacher. It might be a coach. It might be another athlete. It might be. I don't think I have a list of my top 10 most favorite people, but there are so many people you learn from. Like when I was on Ray I had two teammates who were great pitchers. One was a Bertha Reagan Tiki and one was Joe Joyce. And we would sit together for breakfast and they would talk for two hours about the seams on a bowl. And I was like, "Spin it up like a little kid, right? I never thought about that. But uh, you learn those kinds of things from everybody. So I've never had one bro Mm bottle.
0: That's a little little bit
2: of a lot of people.
0: And it sounds like those two uh, players that you were playing with, they taught you a little bit about focusing on the details of the game.
2: Every player on our team was about details. Mm-hmm. That's what the difference is between good and great.
0: Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. And so take me through your journey, not just playing on this team, but then becoming a star. All right. You're in the hall of fame, in many halls of fame. And so what was that like for you in your journey?
2: You no, know, you never when you're first called for a, a hall of fame, you're it's you're nonplussed because you think I'm not dead yet. You know what? Yeah, yeah. I, I can't figure it. It doesn't compute. You know what I mean? The only thing that computes is when somebody shows you your statistics, right? Okay. And I, you never think about it while you're playing. Sure. You just and so I can look at some of those statistics and say. Because that's yeah. right? like Hall of Fame thing, I'm not sure. sure. I've never kept a trophy. I do have. But I might have wanted two trophies, but normally I...
0: What do you do with them?
2: I don't know. I must get rid of... Oh, like when I went into the the basketball Hall of Fame this year. Basketball? I play basketball. It was because I was an AD that yeah. uh, made women's basketball good. That's um, right. I had to go in the cellar and go in the basement and dig through boxes and find things that I had put away for 20 years, an old AIW trophy. And so I just put them all in a box and shipped them to the whole thing, right? But I I don't think I see a value in
0: trophies. What do you think about trophies for kids playing
2: sports? You're good, you don't need a trophy. To be dependent on a trophy, to be dependent on somebody... I used to say this to all my employees, I'm bad. I'm really bad in terms of saying you're the greatest thing since apple pie. I will, When you're great, I'll say it once, right? but I will keep on with it. And if people are just hunting for approval from someone else, that's insecurity. It, and I just used to tell people, listen, if you're good, you know it. You're so happy. <laughs> and I've always believed that. And I I hire people who I think are really secure. They're always looking for the next thing. They never look backwards. They never get consumed by a mistake. They always figure out how to not make the same mistake twice. But the the thing about them is they have secure personalities. They're not passive aggressive. They're not self-centered. I don't know how you describe it, but. I know when I see it, when you interact with people, right?
1: Yeah. That
0: forward-looking notion really does speak to my understanding of you as a person as well, because after you played successfully as a softball player, very successfully, I should say, then you had the same success as a coach and then as an AD. And so I'm curious about that journey. What was that decision-making process like? You said, my playing days are over, but it's time to start coaching and then going to athletic directing.
2: I knew my playing days were over.
1: When we won a national championship, you're the most valuable player and you're relieved
2: that you won as
1: mm-hmm. opposed
2: to being joyous. Mm-hmm. It's like you've fulfilled everybody's expectations. Time to do the next thing. It just... It, it, it was, it was that clear.
0: Yeah. But yeah. clearly you could have done other things too. You could have gone into, why did you choose to stay in?
2: Well, I, I didn't put together, but Joan Joyce and Billy Jean put together the first pro women's softball league. So I had finished playing for Ray Bessons. I came back to help with the start of the establishment of that league. We agreed that Joan and I would be on different teams and we're trying to balance teams and put that league together. And I just played on weekends because I was the AD of Texas. And on Friday night, I, and it was great. I thought, "Wow, well, best of all worlds here!" Friday night, I would uh, I played for the California team one year. I played for a Chicago team one year. I, I, I forget who I played for, but I would fly in for a Friday night doubleheader and pitch the second game. I would pitch the front end of a. Saturday night, Sunday night games, hop on a red eye and get back to Texas. And um, it, it, during the week, obviously, there's nobody to practice to. I, I never talked to Jody about this, but I wonder if she remembers it. So I would put a chair up in the gym, a folding chair, and I'd sit my basketball coach down, Jody Conrad. When I think about it, it's pretty funny. I'd give her a glove and I would say, Just hold the glove where he wanted to throw it. And she would catch a hundred pitches. This is
0: a Hall of Fame basketball coach, I believe. You're talking about the University of Texas. Yeah. He was
2: a But it was, when I think back up for it, it it's funny when you think about it.
0: Yeah, it is. And so what you're saying is you were still traveling, still playing, even after you had been at Brooklyn College and then had taken the role as AD at the University of Texas. I didn't realize that. Okay. So your playing days didn't conclude when you became a coach and when you became an AD, I see. Right. Okay. And so take me through that process of becoming an AD then. What was that like? Did you know that from a pretty early age that you wanted to be in the management? You
2: know, it was all developmental. I Either mean, you're an athlete, you want to stay in sport. I was going to be a PE teacher because that's what people did if they wanted to stay in
1: sure. sport.
2: So I went to a great PE school, which was Southern Connecticut State, a physical education was a product, women in physical education was a product of state teachers institutions nationwide. That's where everybody came out of, right? And these programs, B programs, half of my team was at Southern Connecticut, right? The, oh, is the, that right? Where they went through there mm-hmm. at some point or another. And so we stayed together to play. So you played softball in the spring, summer. I would travel up to Massachusetts to play field hockey because there weren't any good field hockey teams in Connecticut. And then I would play volleyball with my softball team and I would play basketball with my softball team, but we went from season to season. It was great.
0: Sounds, sounds really fun.
2: Yeah, but the transition was pretty simple because you go to school and now you're a physical education teacher and that there is some, something called athletic director. Who hires the coaches, right? And there's mm-hmm. something called coach. And so you look at that and say, oh, I want to be that, right? And the child wanted to be a coach. Then I said, I, I think I want to hire coaches, <laughs> that that this would be fun. So I went on immediately for my master's, my PhD. So I, I just assumed I should get all these degrees because then I could be hired as an AD.
0: Understood. Okay. You know, yeah. And if you worked sorry. No, I was just going to say you and not your first role as an AD was at Brooklyn college, isn't that right?
2: I was an assistant AD. So at Brooklyn, I was an assistant professor when I started there. I, I taught undergraduate and graduate courses. I taught skills courses. I coached two or three sports. It's like what you did, right? Sure. And I volunteered to say, I said, I'll be assistant AD. What do they do? And I'm sure I didn't get paid to do it. We never got paid even to do coaching at that time. Mm -hmm. It's getting, you got one class relief uh, from your workload, Mm -hmm.
1: but
2: you weren't paid to be coached. So that was the world.
0: Um, Did you ever think about doing coaching? If you didn't get paid, maybe it wasn't even really an option. What was that decision like to go the athletic directing route rather than the coaching route, for example?
1: I felt coaching
2: was really boring. Mm-hmm. I, I'd been coach of the Italian national team. I'd been coach of collegiate teams, right? Uh, volley. I started the men's volleyball program at Brooklyn. I, I was coach, right? It's boring because if you want to be good as a coach, you have to start at the beginning every year mm-hmm. and it's you've got a focus on precision a fundamental skills. You've got to bang it into every new class and you get bored with, like I've always said as a teacher, I wish I could write a book on, let's say I'm a teaching badman If I blindfold on, I can tell you the four things that you'll always be right if you say it, right? <laughs> For softball to keep your eye on the ball. I'm sure. Keep your eye on keep your eye on the ball where it comes out of the pitcher's hand. You have to look at it. Huh? Uh, it, so it's boring. I think you really have to like figuring people out. I and mean, how can I take a young kid and I mean, figure them out? How they can, how you can really make them a really good player, overcome their your personality quirks and things like that. And I don't think I've ever been that kind of a people person. Um, uh, it, it was a structure, organizational structure and policy that always interested me.
0: Yeah. Was there something about that particularly got you excited? Organizational structure and policy?
1: Yeah, that you surround yourself with people who are
2: better than you are. And people, I've always had a great CFO. I hate to keep track of money, right? (laughs) And you have to know what you don't like doing and what you're not good at. And I've always felt that the easiest part of athletics was hiring the coach. I, I could never figure why people thought that was so hard, right? Especially at a school like Texas, right? You, you said, oh, I want to be top 10 in the country. If somebody said, I want to be top 10 in the country in every single sport, which is what we said we wanted to do, right? Then we had a pair coaches who cool. were in the top 10 of the country, right? Yeah. If you really want, the theory of hiring a coach was always, all right, let me see the results of the NCAA championship for the last six years. And guaranteed the same five coaches would be one through five if you looked over the last six years, right? And so you call up those coaches and you say, look, not counting you, if you had to hire one person, to be the head coach at the University of Texas, who would it be? And I would ask the same thing. If you had to hire, if if you wanted to hire a woman, who would it be? If you wanted to hire a person of color, who would it be? And that's how I developed my list. Mm -hmm. And I would start at number one. And even if they were impossible, I would, there's not such a thing as impossible.
0: That's another good one.
1: And
2: well, for instance, it, So no. it after a track coach, there was only one woman in the country in the top 10 coaches in track and field because they never let women be over men's and women's track programs, right? And there were very few schools that had separate women's and men's teams. And this one coach who was right there, like six national championships or whatever, was a woman named Terry Crawford from the University of Tennessee. And I said, we got to hire Terry Crawford. And people looked at me like, oh, it's crazy. You just can't go out and leave Tennessee. She's graduated Tennessee. She, her wardrobe is all Tennessee orange. It's not Texas, orange, right? And so I called up Terry Crawford and I said, coach, I know you don't want to leave, leave Tennessee, but can I take you out to dinner, right? I'll fly in and let's just talk about the University of Texas, right? And then you could drop me off to the airport and I'll be happy. Yeah. I fly in. She picks me up in her Mercedes Benz. She takes me to her little mansion at the top of the hill. Hubby drives up in his BMW. Right?
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs>
2: they take me out to a five-star restaurant. <laughs> I'm saying, what am I doing here, right? Engineer, yeah, and, and she came to the University of Texas, and she. The reason why she came was because the University of Tennessee would not pay for fifth-year scholarships for her kids to graduate.
1: Yeah, uh,
2: after they finished their eligibility.
0: Wow, wow! What a great coach! A what a great coach to to prioritize the the needs of her players.
2: And she was our U.S. national team coach, and she wanted her athletes to continue to train with her. So the deal was, fifth year, blindfolded, you have that. Any athlete you want to train here, they can come to the University of Texas and train. You're in the NCAA rules that said you couldn't do
0: it. Do you by chance know if the University of Tennessee Tennessee. offered that to the male athletes at the time? I have no idea. Not sure. Interesting. Wow. So nothing is impossible. And I I think that's a good segue into my next question, which is about the tower amendment, because I read that (laughs) when you started at Texas as the athletic director there, you had only been there a couple of weeks when this issue came across your desk and you protested the amendment, this tower amendment. So I'm curious if you could take the listeners through that story.
2: I will send you a, uh, for the 50th anniversary of Title IX, the Longhorn Network, one of the few institutional TV networks in the country, did a documentary called Giant Killers. I will send you the link to that taped documentary. And it was Madden Hill because of what didn't make it in it. Mm -hmm. And it was... The moment in time when I came and what reality was in Austin, Texas, for women in 1975. And it was a a beloved athletic trainer who got interviewed on television uh, about Title IX and what he was looking forward to. And I'm just going to send you, I'll, I'll send you the link to Giant Killers. But I'll send you the link to this piece that never made it in and you will, you won't believe it. You just won't believe it. I just, anyway, Texas was a very special place and nobody would know it at that time. So I was four or five years into Brooklyn and the Texas job came open and a, a woman named Carol Oglesby called me and Carol was a professor at one of the California schools, but she was the president of, I think she, at the time she was AIW's, one of the first two presidents of AOW or DGWS. And she says, you got to apply for this, this position. It's a dime in the rough. And Carol, I knew because she's the center fielder for the Orange Lionettes, somebody I played with on all-star teams and things like that. And I said, this sounds really exciting. Went down there, did a couple of panels with faculty, very much faculty-led search committee, Mm -hmm. which the the whole thing was an accident of history. They meet with the search committee and they say, you trust to meet the director of men's athletics on a few programs in the country that had separately administered departments. They were not under men's athletics because Daryl Royal, who was then the iconic Nick, she was Nick Saban of his day. He just didn't want to fundraise for women. He had nothing against him. He's like, I can't coach. Be the AD, which he was, and start him in South Valley. She said, "You're crazy. I don't want to do it." And he had that kind of power. So they appointed the chair of the search committee it was a woman named Betty Thompson, who was head of recreational sports at the University of Texas. Was a like 30 or 40 year faculty member. Had been like chair of the faculty Senate, was one of the most powerful women on campus. Yeah. Women physical educators for many years were some of the most powerful women on campus. They they were active in the faculty Senate. They were just no-nonsense kind of people. And this committee got together, and they were all academics. There were no alums at all. And they set up this meeting for me to meet with Daryl yeah. Royal. And We go to the faculty club, we're waiting for Daryl, no show. Betty goes to the phone, calls up, Daryl, where are you? He says, oh my
1: God, I forgot. I'll meet you at my club. Yeah, in downtown Austin. So he says, I'll meet at the Headliners, right?
2: I didn't know what the Headliners Club was. was at the top of the Bank of Commerce building in Austin, right? It was a private club, women weren't allowed. So this whole search committee traipses down to the center of Austin, goes up the elevator, doors open, black waiters in white jacket. If you,
1: You're you think
2: about this, this is the mid-1970s.
1: You're kidding This
2: is the South. Wow. And a very nice guy says, I'm sorry, there are no women allowed in the club. And everybody's taken aback. I said, let me handle this. I said, we're here to see Daryl Royal. He says, oh. and we get led to a private room when the headliners Club. right? It turns out that so we get led to a private room and we're sitting there and we're having drinks and whatever. And the first question that Daryl Royal says to break the ice with this Yankee is Do you like country Western music? Hmm. You know, Daryl Royal's best friend is Willie Nelson.
1: You're kidding. Didn't
2: stop that. He's dead now, but Willie and Dar- Willie had his own golf course and Daryl and Willie would play golf every day that they could. And nobody would ever play golf with them because they only took three or four clubs. They always used to cart, cart and they would get in 36 holes. Golf, right. Yeah. But Willie was Daryl's best friend. He was a real fan of country-western music. So he says, do you like country-western music? And here I was yanking. I said, no, I hate it. I thought that you could hear a can drop with the <laughs> But Daryl was a great guy. He was a very interesting guy. Yeah. Very secure personality. Yeah.
1: So he let that Absolutely. slide. It sounds like
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he was great. He, I I could write a book on Daryl. So Daryl, so he's the AD, and I'm the AD. That's what right. it turns out to be. But it, 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 I almost didn't get to be the AD because search committee only recommended one candidate to the president to hire, and this was the first woman president of the University of Texas. She said, "You can't give me one." candidate that's tantamount to you choosing. I'm supposed to choose. So they went back to the drawing board, the search committee, and this is Betty Thompson, the chair of the search committee, right? They come back and they only gave her one candidate the second time. She said, okay. She said, all right, but you're responsible. I ran EIT in Texas, right? I did not know until she retired I had left, I was, came back to Texas for some reason and called her after she had retired from being a president. And I said, can we go out for a drink or something? I was just curious. And she said, when I first came to the University of Texas, my degree was in chemistry, they would not hire me in chemistry because my husband also came as a chemist and there were. All kinds of things about that. So they hired me as a home economics teacher. And that was the first thing. The last thing she said was, and I wanted to play little league baseball too.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What are the chances of running into somebody that's secure,
2: first woman president at the University of Texas? What were the chances? So I've always said that I was an accident of history.
1: Wow. And, and, yes, it was like that. It, it was an oasis. The first person I
2: met in Austin, we went out for drinks with the search committee. And I oh, do why you meet an attorney, Sarah Weddington. She, at the age of 27, she litigated Roe v. Wade before the Supreme Court. One of the first. People I met, and Richards. It, it, it was like a different place than the rest of the world, and certainly a different place than the rest of Texas.
0: The largest think, number. I'm sorry, you were there 15 years? Is that right? Or a little more, maybe?
2: 17 or 18 17 years.
0: And so, what do you attribute it to? What do you think is unique about Austin within the state of Texas?
2: They like to be good. I, the University of Texas is like none other, right? They want to be the best. It's the Texas mentality, right? They grow better or better than anybody else. This whole notion of, what are you going to do? We're going to be top 10 on every sport. Lighting that the first time the tower was ever lit for women. Our kids went into the administration building and turned the lights on. In the rooms of the tower that would do the number one, which would been a men's tradition. In fact, I still have the photo somewhere. I think we forgot one room, you know, in the number one, but, but it, it was a great experience. And it, it was a good lesson in you always want to enter some place that's a diamond in the roof and build it in your own image with your own staff that if you ever got, when you get into a developed organization. The baggage of that organization is humongous. It takes so long to work through old, older people. Let me say old, experienced in whatever the former culture was. So from Texas, went to the Women's Sports Foundation. With the same thing, it was a diamond in the rough. It had two or three staff members.
0: I want to talk about the, the Women's Sports Foundation in a moment here, but can I, can I just no, go back but, to the Tower Amendment? Because I think this is I'm such an important story to tell, because. You had the job at Texas, but you'd only been there a couple of weeks, and this was potentially professional suicide to protest
1: the Tower Amendment,
0: right?
2: But I didn't know it. I was just 29 years old.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: I was naive. Mm -hmm. It didn't occur to me. It absolutely didn't occur to me. I got a call from Washington, D.C., some people I'd worked with in AIW, the lawyers for AIW. And they said, can you get us a copy of the men's athletics budget? I said, I'm sure. Sure, I can. I know Daryl. Nice. Yeah. I go across cross campus, head to his office. He's on his way out to practice. Daryl, can I have a copy of your budget? And he says, sure, I ask Betty. See you later. I thought he was that kind of guy, right? I go into mm-hmm. his secretary, Betty, right? And say, I just talked to Daryl and I need a copy of his budget. And he gives it to me. I send it off to Washington, D.C.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> they called me a couple of days later and they said, can we have a copy of your budget? And I said, absolutely. It's on one page. It's only $90,000. You yep, 10, 15 lines. <laughs> and then they said, will you come to Washington to testify before Congress? And the first thing that entered my mind was... When I tell my mother and father, mm-hmm. they're going to be so proud, and they'll probably come down from Connecticut, watch me testify as a communist. Sure, that's all. I don't did I know who John Terror was? Probably not, but I didn't know until the day before I was supposed to leave, when Lorraine Rogers, the president, called me,
1: and mm-hmm.
2: she called Dada. This is Lorre.
1: I'm
2: sorry, that. The president, right? I, said, I am so excited. And I was that's my eighth kid, right? I said, I'm so excited. This is we're gonna be great. And she said, I understand you're going to Washington to testify against the tower men. And the light went off. And I said, You told me I shouldn't go. And she said, I'm just gonna tell you how to keep your job. And I really appreciate that. And she said, I want you to do three things. Number one, you schedule an appointment with John Tower. It's a courtesy call. And in this appointment, you're just going to do one thing. You're going to say to John Tower that you are not representing the University of Texas, that you are an expert in sport. And you are, uh, that's why you're testifying. It's nothing to do with him or the University of Texas. Then she said, uh, the second thing is... When you get up to testify, those are the first words that are going to come out of your mouth. And the third thing was, when you submit your written testimony, the first words on the first page are going to be those words.
1: Mm-hmm. Wow!
2: And I wouldn't find out until I had drinks with her, the one years later, that that they tried to get rid of me for doing that. Not Daryl, but uh, this is another accident of history. At the time. The president of the NCA was a guy named Jay Niels Thompson, who was the faculty athletic representative at the University of Texas. He was the head of the engineering, school, right? And Jay Niels and the chair of the board tried to to get rid of me.
1: It's a the, it's an amazing
0: story because wasn't Darrell Royal himself against?
2: He was the president of the American Football Coaches Association. Right. He was the one that. With us meet Jay Niels, got quoted across the country saying Title IX and women's sports would be the death of big-time football.
0: That was the but, battle went uh, on in some ways still going, on, right? No question. So, so no, this, no, was, no question. this was the first sort of concerted effort to overturn Title IX, wouldn't you say?
2: There were four efforts, all of them led by Tower and Jay Niels Thompson. None of them were successful. But definitely this was, I don't know if it was the first. I don't know what the sequence of
0: them were. But in any case, you the idea here was that it would exempt football teams from Title IX. Football and basketball, yeah. And so what did you say to Congress?
2: I showed them the comparison between the men's and the women's budget and explained why it would undermine Title IX. If you're spending 95% of all your money on football and basketball and you take them out of the equation, Then you relegate women's sports to men's minor sports, and women's sports never get to be big-time basketball or big-time.
0: That's right. That's right. They fuel to increase. It
2: wasn't that kind of an argument as much as it was. The reason why the women won was because there were accomplished academics that said, this is what the research tells us, sport does for women. And the way they set up their argument was, sport. Do you want to choose these? Who gets these benefits bef- between your son and your daughter?
0: Right. Absolutely. It, yeah. I have son and one daughter, and I want them all to have the same exactly. Period.
2: And that's what why they want not because of winning basketball or football. But because of the benefits of sport, and these were female physical educators who pulled out all the research on girls who play sports are less likely to be sexually harassed, they're less likely to experience pregnancy, they're more likely to matriculate in college, i just kidding. And tell them what the facts.
0: Yeah, definitely. So that leads me to my next question, right? Because you've seen it evolve and the landscape of women's sports has changed in some significant ways, but still remains the same in others. And so I'm curious, what do you think are the most significant advancements that have been made, maybe in terms of opportunities or recognition, support?
2: It's been 50 years, and it's saying a lot. When in 1975, Title IX went into effect, only one out of every 27 high school girls played sports compared to one out of every two boys. And it's one in every three girls now. Remarque. And there are role models there. Women are not still not equally treated in terms of numbers of opportunities or scholarships or whatever. But you can see the difference in women today because of their sport experience. Research on women in the C-suite in corporate America: ninety-five percent of them played sports. Women were taught how to compete, and that's the basis of success in capitalist society.
1: Absolutely, and they're a tall team. And they're good at it uh, a lot better than the guys, I think.
0: And what challenges do you think still exist? What are the areas where you're putting your attention? Well,
2: yeah, intercollegiate athletics has to be reformed for men and women. And the biggest problem is financial because that's the NCAA has become a trade association. It's when everybody was relatively poor before million dollar year coaches, before television. Money started coming in. The most serious thing that happened with sports was I don't know what, right? It just, you, you just never confronted anything of any substance. You sure, certainly did not have the lavish facilities and excesses that today are embarrassing. I, I was just at the University of Texas a couple of months ago. And I I said to, All my friends, including the current AD, who's there, saying, you've got all these kids in a bubble. And it is lavish excess, One strength coach for every four kids. Your private women's intercollegiate athletic volleyball gymnasium. You've got four weight training facilities. How many food stations are at the athletic training table? Uh, that these kids enter this bubble. They don't interact with other kids on campus. uh, And I worry about what happens when that's over. (laughs) Right? There there aren't, listen, 2% of these kids are going to be praised or stay in sport. And they're going to have to make it in a world that isn't throwing lavish facilities at them. And it depends on their being able to communicate with other people of different kinds. Not, we're not doing these guys any service here, And And it really is very stunning. I've not been back to Texas since before the pre- uh, pandemic. And I just went I said, do you think about this? And the answer is no. They are just competing for athletes. And right. these are...
0: This race. is the
2: standard that's set. Uh, we're in the arms race. Period. End of story.
0: Yeah. yeah, because for them to break out of the arms race would be professional suicide as well. Right? To yeah. say, yeah, we're no, going to no, spend absolutely. money on something else instead of these opulent facilities.
1: Right. Absolutely. And that's why
2: we're just right back to where we were in the mid 1970s.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: In, se- in the 70s, the current NCAA, or really the Power Five, right? The equivalent was the AU. The Amateur Athletic Union held a stranglehold on every single national team, every single sport, and they were incestuous in terms of pointing their buddies as the chef de mission on an international trip or to the Olympic Games, their friends as coaches. They had the same... It wasn't called NIL, nickname image likeness at the time was called amateur status, but it was, you cannot earn money outside from your athletic prowess or Olympic athletes are amateurs, right? Kids had to establish trust funds if they got money from corporations and they had to justify every penny they spent that was against, would have to be against a training expense. They could not make profit from the use of their NIL. So it was the same exact thing in 1975. And the answer was President Ford appointed a presidential commission and we started losing gold medals. That's what precipitated it. We were we're getting beat by the East Germans
1: Mm -hmm.
2: who were uh, using drugs. The whole American sports system was uh, worried to death that US dominance was at net. Ford to the, appointed a commission on Olympic sports, which met for three years and reported out the Amateur Sport Act of 1978, which kicked out the AAU and replaced it with the U.S. Olympic Committee. And that's what we're in the middle of the Drake Group is in the middle of doing right now to trying to replicate that process to get Congress to appoint a commission to work for two or three years and to report out the Collegiate Athletics Reform Act of 2025 maybe, but uh, to see whether we can grapple with the structural problems that exist right now, we can, it, I, yeah. I sent you that blueprint.
0: Yes, you did, and I'm eager to read it. And I'm also curious though, for your choice to move from the Women's Sports Foundation to the Drake Group, because you also have your own business, right? But the, was the desire to move to the Drake Group to solve some of these collegiate sport issues, was that tied in your mind, as it would seem to me, to the effort to advance gender equality in sports as well? Because I see them as working in lockstep. I'm curious for your thoughts on that.
2: No, when I left the Women's Sports Foundation, the one thing I had never done before was to do my own business at first. So I just decided to be a consultant. And spent the first two or three, I left the Women's Sports Foundation in 08. I did not come to the Drake Group until 12 or 13, so five years later almost. And I spent two years in Qatar straightening out. it, It was a great adventure in that. It's just about international sport. It it was the last adventure, great adventure of my life, right? So it was great fun. And I was just, when I came back to the States, I was spending three weeks a month for two years in in Qatar. And so when I came back, I was looking for what I'm going to volunteer my time for. And I knew Alan Sack at the University of New Haven, who was an advocate of reform from way back. And I said, Alan, why don't we make the Drake Group, which was a five hundred one? They weren't even incorporated at the time. There are a bunch of faculty critics, and they would criticize. That's what faculty members do, right? They would write articles and sort of be critics. I said, why don't we become an advocacy organization? And why don't we go do after Congress? Because the NCAs are not going to do anything. And so that that was how the process started. That they wanted to do more and wanted to figure it out, and it was a great new thing for me. So how do we straighten this out?
0: And it was it well-received, that idea, in the Drake Group at the time, among these?
2: Oh, there factions? was a fight. There was a fight between two factions, not about going with, after Congress, but there was a split of the Drake Group in terms of paying athletes. Mm-hmm. There, there was a philosophical split. Yeah, where
1: that's so yeah, funny it,
2: it, it was that kind of a.
1: I
0: hate to interrupt you, Don, but I've had that split in my own mind many times over the years in writing yeah. about college sports because there's fantastic reasons to pay them, and there, there's also really good reasons not to. But what do you see as the, the blueprint here as far as pushing Congress to change the landscape of college sports so that their equity? for all or at least as many as possible right and this is a system where it's just lopsided with who's getting the benefits of it at the moment you
2: have to grapple with this pay for play thing and it is central yeah to any solution you have a 501c3 educational institution whose mission is and they have to be accredited to to teach kids to offer the baccalaureate or advanced degrees, that is why they have nonprofit status. That's right. I come from Connecticut. There's a law in Connecticut that says, if I'm employed by the state of Connecticut, I'm the basketball coach. I cannot use Southern Connecticut State University that the name or my association with it for private gain. I cannot as a private individual, an organization as a private organization, cannot use an asset of a nonprofit, an asset of the state, in the case of state universities. So if you keep that as the centerpiece of whatever the solution is, you get all the right answers. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean the right answer is that the institution cannot give its assets
1: to an athlete, NILs, that they're not willing to give right? If I'm running a higher education
2: institution, this belongs to the state, this belongs to the institution. And if I'm a nonprofit, I can't do individual licensing, group licensing with my athlete, right? Mm-hmm. It's like I'm getting in cahoots with an outside person. that happens to be an athlete, right? But you feel guilty and maybe this is a way to pay him back. That's what you're going through probably, right? Individual licensing, group licensing or pay Something that isn't educationally tethered. Yeah, you know, that's what Wilkins and all of the court judgments have said. That's absolutely the right thing. It's got to be edu- educationally tethered. And what's good is now that NILs exist and you've kicked out the NCA's role as denying athletes bona fide outside employment, then the problem isn't there because Now the institution, for its reasons, is developing the athlete brand in conjunction with the organization. And now everybody knows because the institution has put you on television, has blessed you as a talented athlete. And some of you are going on to the pros, right? But they've made your brand so you can make money on the outside a little easier than if you had no brand, right? They're giving you the tools, which is what organizations like academic institutions are for, I think, the tools to know how to make money after you leave or outside of school. And now the issue is, how do we make this clear to everybody? And people are thinking this way, right? The latest IRS ruling against these booster collectives is at the heart of that. But then there needs to be more talk on all of this.
0: What about the collectives? Because NIL is being now. Oh, no, they
2: they are a facade. Mm-hmm. Th- these are not nonprofit entities. These are employment entities, right? Th- this is I'm gonna offer you employment. And they're dedicated to offering employment only to athletes from one institution. And the value of what employment they provide is not based on the free marketplace. It's based on a rigged marketplace. It's value to institution, not free marketplace value. And what's it worth in the free marketplace for me to go to a Ford dealer and sign autographs or to endorse a shoe for Nike, right? right. But think about Nike. What is the free marketplace, it works. Is who pays your salary is for its value to that person, right? But these boosters have gotten together, and they're in pig heaven because hey, it's my team. I'm going to get the, I'm going to get the top recruit, right? Hey guys, everybody chip in hundred grand. We will buy Coach Saban. We will buy him his next recruit. It is. They're playing this outside booster gate, right? It has nothing to do with the free marketplace. I, and I think another piece of the puzzle mm-hmm. that goes toward your assessment of whether or not any resources of the institution should be used to compensate athletes, any resources, is the fact that the the economic underpinnings of athletics are based on institutional subsidies derived from non-athlete tuition and activity fees. If you have 2,000 athletic programs in the U.S. that have college athletic programs, and you only have 25 of those in any one year that are making more money than they spend, where are the subsidies coming from? 98.6% of all of these programs are subsidized by two sources, institutional general funds, Tuition
1: money, right,
2: and by activity fees that often do not reveal the, what percentage of that fee is going to support the athletic program, right? Right. Or just the and some of them are thousand, two thousand dollars a year, adding to student debt. Average student debt,
1: thirty grand,
2: and, and, and going to the students.
0: opulent facilities construction, right? And, okay. Absolutely. Which, what
2: people don't realize, and what Congress is beginning to realize is that all of that student tuition money is anchored by Congress's Higher Education Act, the $130 billion a year to fund student loan programs. Just think about it. Congress is creating the financial possibility of the greatest institutions of higher education in the world, right? By subsidizing tuition in a very big way, by giving out student loans. It's really throwing tons in there. And so there's no control. There's no restraint on tuition fees, right? There, Economically, when you look at it, there is no constraint. When this 130 billion comes in, the only constraint is, do you have enough? And so tuition keeps going up. There is, uh, So we should all be thinking, I think of, Who's paying for this? And what the SBS SBS would have you think, the football bowl subdivision, it's really the paraphrase, it's not even all of the five that's in this, is somehow, if you ask Joe Cube Publix, should we pay athletes? You know what the answer is. Yes. That's right. If you say, how many institutions are making more money from athletic programs than they spend? They say, oh, all of them. Go out and that's Joe Q. Public, right? And athletic programs make money. Oh, big money. They're on television. Totally so it's very complex. And the first step has been educating Congress. Yeah, not have
0: curious, a clue. I'm curious, Donna, yeah. because it, it it seemed to me that I've read Professor Zimbalist's work on this. And there are obviously very few programs that are in um, the block in terms of making money. But then again, they're also spending so much money on coaches and facilities. That it seems the arms race is, is, of course, driven by the desire to recruit the best next player, but it's also, I don't know if you can call it mismanagement of the money, but there's so much money flowing into college sports, and that's what the public sees. And so they think, why aren't the athletes getting a bigger piece of the pie? Especially what's the answer?
1: from four this right?
2: But what's the answer? The, the answer is you've got to control expenditures, Right. So Congress has a way to control expenditure since it's throwing 108, $130 billion into the system every year, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So they can tie conditions. And this is the whole premise of the blueprint, right? If you tie receipt of higher education funding, which is the Title IX hook, to meeting these conditions, I'll just give you one condition, okay, that not touching any institutional money, not touching any institutional subsidies, the National Collegiate Athletic Association, the governance organization must own championships. And all the income from those championships should go to benefit 500,000 kids, not be given back to those football and basketball teams. And all it would take is the billion-dollar Final Four and what will soon become a $2 billion college football playoff when they expand past four, it will pay for the medical trust that 20 years from now is going to deal with the concussion problem that has been created with college football programs. It will take care of the expenses of kids who might have dreamed of professional sports, but guess what? They didn't make it.
0: Yeah, Yeah. we need retraining for those kids, right? If their minds were always on the being professionals, and then all of a sudden they get the bad news, they're not getting drafted. There's got to be money there to help them find work. Don't you think so? We're
2: doing a a big research program right now. The the problem with not graduating is very complex. And if you're going to point the finger, it is the recruiting of underprepared individuals who are predominantly Black, you look at what the percent athletes of color are among all sports, the only uh, two sports where they're clearly the majority are basketball and football, to an extent, track and field. But track and field is a really weird number in that there are so many track and field kids and they count three times, cross-country, indoor, outdoor. it's really hard to look at that number, and it uh, makes huh. sense. But uh, basketball and football are over fifty percent athletes of color. The closer a sixty or seventy, in the case of basketball, and because the football teams are so big and there's enough room uh, for the tackling dummies, you don't have to be athletes of color. You see a little lower number in terms of the football programs. But so you have these two sports, which are exploiting kids. Because they're recruiting kids who are underprepared. Right. The, the little known you know, secret is special admissions for yep. anybody who's got the athlete crids, right? And where the crime is being committed is not special admissions.
1: If the institution said, hey, I want this kid. I know they're not prepared. I'm going to remediate them.
2: I'm going to make sure that if they come in, I'm going to take care of it. I'm going to make sure they come out educated. That would be fine. But that's where the crime is. The crime is they bring them in, and the first thing they do is they destroy their aspiration to be students. And they do it by saying to a kid, we're going to put you in an easy course so you have a success experience. Translation. We're going to make sure you stay eligible. And you don't think that kid knows what you think? Uh,
0: yeah, um, it just immediately damages any self-confidence that was there. Abs- absolutely,
1: Describe.
2: and that's where the system needs to change. And I'm not talking about, we know that we can remediate without changing any college course. Uh, would it surprise you to know that 40% of those And I'll make up the numbers right now because we're actually looking at these numbers. Somewhere between 40 to 60% of those specially admitted kids have learning disabilities or ACHD and nobody's testing for it. Or if they are testing for it, they're not coming up with a long-range plan to deal with a learning disability or ACHD. It can be dealt with, but you have to know it exists and you have to be committed to Figuring out how to overcome that. And then the other thing we know about this group is too large of a percentage are entering with learning, not learning disabilities, but reading, writing, and math deficiencies. So they're not at grade level coming into college. You only have to be at ninth grade level, but they're not at grade level, right? And then the the real kicker on all this that people don't know that we hope to reveal in a very big way is.
1: All of these kids who are minute are average to above average IQ. Hmm. They
2: come from disadvantaged households. They come from athletic programs who have pushed them through and made things easier for how long. But you talk to any football or basketball coach and you say, what, is, what kind of intelligence does it take to learn my playbook? This ain't for stupids right? And these kids are, they have plenty of intelligence. They simply have not uh, been directed to have that intelligence work in academic areas. So so I'm going through all this uh, by the end of this summer. uh, We'll come out with, I think, a challenge on the academic support program. So on how to construct an academic support program that the kid, it may take six years, for a kid to graduate, then another piece of the puzzle is we know the worst thing you can do. And this is from Gates Foundation funded uh, studies of HBCUs, which have the populations of HBCUs have similar profiles in terms of disadvantaged family backgrounds of the kids we're talking about who are especially admitted to the prominently white schools, right? What Gates found out was, it, it wasn't Gates, it was the study, the frontier set study is that there were two really good indicators of, will you get the college degree? One was patch, passing Algebra two in high school. The other was in your first semester of your college year that you passed at least 24, 24 to 30 hours of legitimate coursework, no remedial coursework. And that's like saying, no easy courses, right? That that you've got to be in, in this place. So you've got to get to them the summer before that first semester. You've got to identify in that summer before the first semester, semester what you're dealing with in terms of how much do I have to accomplish in this next two years to get this kid up to snuff with his classmates, right? And that's where we should be. That's where... The NCA should have been ten or fifteen years ago in terms of instead of turning a blind eye to what we're doing to those kids, they start saying I believe these kids have been the victims of racism, the assumption that, hey, just come here, you're gonna be better off just coming rubbing elbows with our guys,
1: right? Or white guys. Yeah, definitely.
0: I couldn't agree more. My reading of the history of the NCAA and the the lack of reform that's been able to actually occur, despite many instances where it's been professed as being a priority, is exactly what you said. There are a lot of people doing just fine, and they haven't perceived a real need for the reform. But they've been doing well because of this racist infrastructure. Who's doing
2: well? You're just reading the NCAA's media releases, right? They invent an academic metric called the graduation success rate, which is invalid. You can't compare any of these athlete kids to the general student body. And it's 15 to 20 points higher than the federal graduation rate, which is how we measure graduation of yes. kids. And then they advertise once a year, big time, 90% graduation rates in. D1 athletics, right? And what they're doing is aggregating all of the graduation rates of this, really, they have this unexploited population, right? Unexploited in the sense that they're recruiting kids who are academically takeable, right? And it it is, it's a shame. That graduation rate is a shame.
1: It is. Yeah, So, and so when I Christian. tell you
2: that there's yeah. a 52% failure rate among D1 basketball players, 52% failure rate, these are kids on full scholarship who are full-time students for four or five years,
1: and half of, more than half of them don't graduate? What? Are you kidding me? It's insane. These are the full scholarship kids.
0: That's no, insane. It's absolutely insane.
2: But that's just stuff. You just have to, and this is what I tell, especially all my kids who are not yet in the world, right? You're going to leave college and you're going to think you're so damn smart. You're going to go into your first job and you have the solution, right? And you're going to say it. You're going to give them the solution. And maybe it's absolutely right. But. You're going to say it once and you're going to change the system and you're going to get it right. The hordes in this information, uh, the low-deck environment are going to pick out your great idea and bless you. This is about persistence over time. Yes. If you want to change systems.
0: You've done that. You've done that, Donna. You've been at the forefront of getting closer. Not there, but closer. But
2: what does that that do? It means persistence over time. Right. We've been at this one bill for six, seven, eight years.
1: And
0: I was thinking, you're of course right about the college sports uh, changes that have occurred in recent years, which I I must give you uh, a, a ton of credit for working towards. But I was also thinking about all your work in gender equity, and you must be Observing some of the fruits of that labor now. I'm curious what your thoughts are there. There
2: are new assaults on gender equity. One one is the transgender issue That's in sports great. that we're looking at, and it's a very complex problem in this sense that 10 years ago, the transgender community said, Oh, it's possible to mitigate post puberty male advantage. Ray grows up thinking, Oh, at puberty, uh, girls that can't compete against boys anymore. But there, there was this thing that started this message that started 10 years ago that said, hey, we can give you estrogen. And now you can compete like a woman. The impression is that we can change your biology to be a woman, that there's no legacy advantage. Nobody's going to recognize you have a larger heart or larger uh, lungs, denser bones, you're a bigger, baker, right? What is it, nobody opening their eyes here? And that 10 years ago argument has now changed to work. If your gender identity is female, you're born male, your gender identity is female. Did you know that 70% of those transgender male bodies don't do anything to their body? They don't go through surgery. They're not taking hormones, and I don't want them to, right? What? Are you kidding me? We're going to set an eligibility rule that requires someone either to mutilate their body or to take hormones, which are really powerful things that are irreversible, and we're going to send that message to kids who are in middle school and high school? We are not thinking through this problem. But the worst part is that it's not the worst part. You're saying it's okay for a male body to come in and take a limited resource program, like intercollegiate athletics. How many kids can you carry on your team? How many scholarships can you get? And now, with for the male body take that slow.
1: And if you say that out loud, somebody is gonna call you transphobic. Indeed. I can, but it's okay in the sense that, these are well-meaning
2: folks in terms of the transgender community wanting gender identity to be honored and respected and not bullied and uh, creating issues. It's exactly where sexual orientation was 30 years ago, 40 years ago, right? Where people were not respected for their differences. It's one thing to say that's, it's exactly what the law should protect. It's another to say, when you create two categories in sport, because of immutable differences, you're going to violate the reason why you establish those categories. So you have the men's category pre-Title IX, right? You establish separate sex women's sport because women can't compete. 1978, Americans with Disabilities Act, think about the Paralympics. You have two categories because of immutable physical dif- differences that do not allow you, in the case of Paralympian, to compete against an able-bodied person. In the case of women, to compete against a post-puberty male. Right? And you're not going to let men into women. You're going you're to, the USJ Gulf this year established a category. They had Paralympic categories and they had a transgender category. And they gave them golf trophies, right? Uh, the US Open in these categories. Who won this other category? Transgender. Transgender person, an able bodied male can't compete against Paralympians, right? I'm bringing all this up because, hey, we got to start thinking this through. And not having two extremes here, one of, uh, and we've got to, we've got to question this, if you're not following science, if you don't understand what this is about or why categories were created in the first place, this is not a simple issue.
0: It is not. Oh.
2: So I can keep going on here.
0: My, my That's okay. It's about to run out. Okay. It's, I, I just so appreciate you taking the time to. Share your thoughts and your experiences here with my listeners, Donna. I really appreciate it. And I always end these calls by asking my guests, what is the power of sports to them? And you've had such a remarkable life in sports and you surely use sports to make meaning in your lives. But I, I'm just curious what you would say to that question. What is the power of sports to you?
2: I think all people should have the experience of sports because there are over a hundred sports out there. There is one for every single body Mm, and it's before you, you are measured by your intelligence or your degree or some other thing later on in life, you can give the gift of competence to young people that just be competent at something. And if you find sport, you can find that. And that's why... Kids and everybody grows up with a, a passion for sports. Parents used to call me all the time and say, "My daughter, I enrolled her in soccer program. She came home and says she doesn't want to doesn't want to do tee ball anymore." And I said, got to have a rule. You've got to be in it for at least three weeks, right? Can't let them quit right away, right? You have to wait until they get their first until they score their first goal." And then you can't drive them away from the damn sport because that's how powerful sport is. Okay. You feel like when that happens, that hit, that goal, Diana and, and I had said this best. She said, you feel like you own the earth.
1: Mm-hmm. That's wonderful. And to give
2: kids that gift, and it's not in physics, and it's not in some esoteric whatever, it's something everyone can feel that's a gift.
1: I
0: love that. I love that. I really appreciate you sharing this time with me, Donna. This has been really fantastic. And I just, I'm so grateful to you for for taking the time. Thank you so
2: much. Anytime. And thank you for serving on the the Drake
0: Board of Directors. Of course. And I look forward to working with you there and learning more from you, Donna. I really admire all of the work you've done. Thank Thank you very much. I'll talk to you very soon and and I'll be having a wonderful rest of your day.
1: You too. Take care. Bye. Bye Bye.